0: Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to episode 232 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from September 26, 2017 titled, quote, Our Hospitals Are Killing Us, from a 1966 magazine. So if you want to um, go to the page of this episode, there are going to be uh, links to articles, photos, a lot to look at. If you go to leanblog.org slash audio 232, that's the link. Here is the post, three or four months ago, in the midst of a discussion on LinkedIn about patient safety, somebody made reference to a 1966 cover story from the magazine Look. Look was a very popular competitor to Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. So this was an article written for a very general public audience. If you go to the blog page, you can uh, see the cover of the magazine. Um, The cover featured a photo of Jackie Kennedy. This was just about 30 months after JFK's assassination. But what I'm blogging about today, the tease on the cover in all capital letters says, Our hospitals are killing us. The subtitle reads, An alarming report on conditions in many American cities. Um, I couldn't find uh, the article archived anywhere online, but I did manage to buy a physical copy of the issue of that magazine through eBay, you can do the same uh, if you like. But let's dive into this article again from 1966. Um, I did create a PDF of the main section of the article. If you'd like to go and download it again, you can go to leanblog.org audio 232. Uh, the magazine uh, is defunct, but um, so there isn't really anyone to um, care about uh, the copyright on this. So I've shared um, this article for anyone who would like to see it. The article begins with the story of preventable error that led to a patient's post-operative death. It says, um, the chief of surgery is being quoted. We had one case recently in which a skilled team of surgeons operated for hours to save a critical case, he said. After the operation, the patient was put back in the ward and placed on a bird respirator. At five in the afternoon, we went to look at him and we were proud because he was alive and doing well. When I came in to see the patient the next morning, he was dead. The nurse had forgotten to replace the oxygen tank for the respirator. Nursing care in this hospital is abysmal, end of quote. So it seems like, you know, a fact-based statement would be the oxygen tank was not replaced. Now, did you notice how the article, again, this was a hospital's chief of surgery talking here, blames, quote, the nurse? I mean, he, and it was most likely a he, as chief surgeon in 1966, then makes the leap to criticize nursing care more broadly as abysmal. Now, a more modern view of healthcare quality, including the lean or just culture approaches, would look first to systems and processes instead of blaming an individual. Why was a nurse put in a position to have to remember? Why did they rely on that? We're all human after all, which means we forget things, we get tired, Busy, fatigued, and we forget. Why wasn't there a checklist for the nurse's critical tasks? Why wasn't there an alarm on the respirator to alert people that the tank was empty? Why wasn't there a simple mechanical timer with a bell or alarm to prompt somebody to change the tank? The problem seems preventable, but blaming and firing, quote unquote, bad apples doesn't seem to be uh, the way to prevent errors and harm. You know, there's still, even today, too much naming, blaming, and shaming um, that takes place, uh, including one example of a a very blaming, blamey CEO that I blogged about, and uh, there's a link in the post. I also wrote a post in 2014 about the ineffectiveness of firing the quote-unquote bad apples, which I've also linked to here. Now, the Looked article explains uh, the quote-unquote tarnished side of medicine, that is, as as the author wrote, apparently well known to knowledgeable medical critics, but has been hidden from the public view. Patients only learn, quote, through hazardous experiences, what veteran physicians are well aware of, that the hospital is a complex entity with failings that threaten quality medical care, end of quote. Now, hospitals have only gotten more complex in the last 50 years. Have they gotten safer? Well, yes and no. The quote-unquote dangerous deficiencies cited by the Look article are medication errors, anesthesia incompetence, the, 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 these are all their words, hospital-bred infection, faulty diagnostic workup, blood transfusion errors, unnecessary or poor surgery, inadequate nursing care, inappropriate therapy, which included uh, a mention of unnecessary cesarean sections, a problem that's still being worked on today, and quote-unquote negligence. Now, it's often said that anesthesia and blood transfusions have become much safer over the past 50 years, and that's not because of uh, quote-unquote better people. It's a matter of better process, error-proofing, and technologies that have led to better care in those areas, which are held up as positive examples of some parts of healthcare getting it and making significant improvements. Anesthesia error death rates in the 1966 article were estimated to be one in 1,000 or one in every 2,000 cases, meaning that would be 9,000 to 33,000 deaths a year. Um, A recent study suggests anesthesia error deaths fell to just 34 deaths per year in 2005. And if anyone has Better numbers on any of these um, types of harm, um, please go to the blog post and post a comment. You know, one thing that's still a problem today is the existence of wide ranges of estimates for numbers related to patient harm and death. The current US estimates from different studies range from 44,000 to 440,000 deaths a year due to medical error. That's a huge range, right? The lack of transparency over medical error leads to studies being done on a small number of patient records that then get extrapolated. Healthcare organizations aren't transparent, but then they complain about the estimates being inaccurate. I mean, can they really have it both ways? Not reporting anesthesia error deaths was a really big problem in 1966, as it said, Death certificates, for example, severely understate the anesthesia problem. In assigning the cause of death on a death certificate, anesthesia was rarely entered. Uh, You probably won't see medical error listed as a cause of death in 2017 either, even though some encourage that healthcare professionals should do that. Everything else in that bullet list of errors sounds very current. There are problems that, uh, these are problems that have not been solved. The lack of transparency around errors and harm makes it impossible to compare 1966 data to, say, 2016 data. Major patient safety problems remain. And I don't mean like, you know, in, uh, along the lines of we're not perfect. I mean, we're still far from perfect in many ways. The article says, it is essential that this raging private medical dialogue about the state of our hospitals be made considerably more public. I would say the same here in 2017. I call the patient safety crisis, as as I would call it, the crisis that nobody talks about. When we see articles about process problems on the front page of USA Today, it seems like the general public reacts as if those problems are isolated, as if those hospitals are outliers. The patient safety problem is still very widespread. The author of the 1966 piece cites medical research studies that were done in New York. The Trussell reports that were quote, Forceful Rebuttals of the Mythology of the Uniformly Competent American Hospital. Now, again, I'll point out that patient safety is a global problem, and I've linked to statistics about this. One of the Trussell reports suggested that errors in judgment or technique in anesthesia or surgery contribute close to 50% of the mortality in the operating room. One study in the 1966 article suggested that of 21 surgical deaths of infants and children that they examined, 90% were the result of doctor error. And in the cases of 17 geriatric patients who died, errors were committed in the surgical care of seven of the 17. That's 41%. Let's look at hospital acquired infections. Today, as in 1966, patients and visitors assume hospitals are cleaner and more sterile than they really are. The old article wrote and said, in many studies by doctors. Emphasis is given to the dangers of dirt and infection in our hospitals. This comes as a surprise to the casual visitor who often sees the American hospital as the quintessence of cleanliness with its white robes nurses and pungent purifying smell of antiseptic cleansers. The article estimated in 1966, well over 1 million Americans contracted infections in the hospital. 750,000 of those were hospital-acquired surgical infections. Current CDC statistics say there were about 722,000 hospital-acquired infections in American hospitals in 2011. Considering the US population grew from 196 million to 311 million from 1966 to 2011, At least we can say the per capita rate dropped, but healthcare-acquired infections are still a huge problem. As we saw um, also occur in the recent USA Today article I blogged about, the 1966 article says, hospital infections are invariably a uh, a result of loose hospital standards and procedures. We also saw loose procedures mentioned in my recent post about Toyota helping a children's hospital reduce infections. Now, that's a familiar 2017 problem. But again, it's not bad apples as the cause. Why are hospital standards and procedures loose? That can be the result of understaffing and overwork, a lack of supervision, training issues, equipment, supply problems, things like that. The article discusses the wide variation in surgical infection rates at different hospitals in that era, ranging from 3% to 11.7% across five university medical centers that were studied. I mean, what are the surgical infection rates at your local hospitals? I mean, today, you can perhaps find data on the CMS Hospital Compare website. But the article talks about a 1966 problem that doesn't exist anymore. Surgeons wore, quote-unquote, rubber gloves, but two doctors claimed breaks in approximately 30% of gloves worn. It sounds like what they called sterile disposable gloves were a relatively new invention, But some hospitals at the time were, quote, attempting to reprocess them in a misguided effort to save money. I mean, hospitals today have their own misguided efforts to save money, such as uh, laying off their internal lien or process improvement teams, as I've heard about twice already this week. So let's talk about medication errors from the article. The article claims that at the time, the average nurse a Florida hospital researcher revealed, made one error for every six medications given. Uh, That seems to, again, blame the nurses for being the sole cause of errors instead of looking at systems and processes. This uh, I linked to a 2004 study at a Texas hospital that found the error rate was about one in 10. This 1966 article gives an example of a patient being given uh, distilled water intravenously instead of glucose, which caused irreversible heart damage. Another patient was mistakenly given penicillin, even though their chart said allergic to pen. That patient died. It said in one reputable Florida hospital alone, they unearthed an annually projected 51,200 medical blunders. But when asked, a nurse was asked to recall any medication errors she had ever made, and answered confidently, none. To my knowledge, I have never made one. Well, this very same nurse was observed, and during the very first shift of observation, it said, this nurse gave a patient two aspirin tablets, which were not ordered. That wasn't all, though. Uh, Other errors she was involved in included, where it says, quote, to another patient she gave at different times Two doses of procaine penicillin, and though the order on the chart was for 1.2 million units, she gave 600,000 units each time. She gave one phenobarbital tablet to another patient for whom no such order existed. And to still another patient, she administered a injection, though the order on the chart said oral paparavine. Something about blood transfusion errors. Blood transfusion errors were a much bigger problem in 1966, with at least 3,000 patients dying each year due to errors. It said in the article, two and a half million hospital patients receive transfused whole blood yearly, and most live to discuss it. But the toll of blood transfusion accidents and biological contamination is outlandishly high. A minimum of 3,000 die every year, And from 10,000 to 75,000 hospitalized patients contract hepatitis as a result of the transfusion. Thousands more suffer other serious reactions, including hemorrhaging, gangrene, red cell destruction, kidney disease, and even heart attacks. Now, rates today seem uh, much lower in the U.S. and other countries, uh, per a study I've linked to. Uh, But I didn't know this, it says in, in that study. Since 1966, the United States has required the reporting of all transfusion-associated deaths to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Now, this is still not the case for other types of medical errors, which get underreported or covered up far too often. The 1966 article says, preventable, quote-unquote, human failure in the hospital accounts for at least 50% of blood transfusion accidents. Now, human error is to be expected. People are imperfect. Now, if we're not blaming people for being human, we also don't just shrug our shoulders and act as if there's nothing we can do about human error. We can work to develop better, more robust systems that mitigate or prevent human error, as I've blogged about. The 66 article points out that many of the blood transfusions of the day, about 50%, were unnecessary, which then unnecessarily exposed people to risk from transfusion error. I would add lean today shouldn't be about doing the wrong things more effectively. Let's look at other types of accidents. One VA hospital study in the 66 article counted 3,747 non-medical accidents among 108,000 patients. That's a 3.5% rate. That included falling from beds, what were described as ill-designed hospital beds. Being uh, burned by chemicals and hot liquids, cut by thermometers, and injured by equipment, sponges and other items being left inside a surgical patient's are still in the news today, as they were in the '66 article. These so-called never events are common enough that the problem perhaps inspired uh, the Snickers TV commercial. Um, that it's that, not very funny when you realize this is a real and serious problem where uh, a surgeon left a phone inside. Uh, a patient's stomach, but that that really happens, or at least it did in the country of Jordan in 2015. In the article, uh, the Joint Commission is mentioned. The author describes American hospitals as, quote, a surprisingly free agent, su- uh, answering virtually only to itself for its record of death, misadventure, and medical culpability. The piece continues, The external control is approval by the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals, whose criteria are both voluntary and generally unchallenging. Of 7,127 hospitals, 4,204 are accredited. Some 1,000 hospitals are too small to qualify, while others blithely ignore the organization. A hospital's lack of accreditation should prompt suspicion, but approval is no guarantee of patient safety, it says. Now, this article was written just one year after the Joint Commission received what's called deemed status from Congress. Um, A former Joint Commission chairman uh, is quoted in the article as saying the, quote, minimal standards should not lead the public to believe that accredited hospitals are superior. But today, the Joint Commission gives their quote-unquote gold seal to accredited hospitals, which seems to imply those hospitals are quote-unquote superior. Of course, how can most every hospital be superior when most of them manage to get accredited? Today, the Joint Commission says their accreditation implies the highest standards for healthcare quality. Hmm. As the doctor points out um, in the 66 article, Many hospitals go to sleep between accreditation surveys and uh, thats I wonder if that's still a problem today. So some final thoughts from the article. Uh, the article concludes by saying, the American patient does not have to be satisfied with such low standards of adequacy. Understanding of hospital pitfalls can help communities make more intelligent decisions. Thus armed, they can insist that all hospitals become what they were intended to be, institutions of healing, places of impeccable science and meticulous care. So I think that's still true today, right? I mean, patients shouldn't be satisfied with 2017's level of quality. We need to inform patients about risks so they can better protect themselves as the BATS guide publications help with from the Louise BATS Patient Safety Foundation. We should make healthcare price and quality data more transparent and more easily available so patients can make better choices. I mean, we're still working toward the goal of all hospitals becoming the best hospitals they can be. So I'm curious, what are your reactions to this look back to 1966? What are your thoughts about the progress that's been made and in some cases hasn't been made since then? I'd love to hear what you think. You can post a comment by going to leanblog.org audio 232.